Hola, mi gente. My name is Jessica Yanez, and I want you to join me for some wine and chisme. The Wine and Chisme podcast was created to amplify voices across communities of color, all while drinking a glass of wine. From wine talk, interviews, and recaps of all things pop culture, join me every Wednesday for the chisme. Please make sure to check out the Wine and Chisme podcast and other amazing podcasts as part of the Latina Podcasters Network. Did you know that you can experience many of the wines I taste here on the Wine and Chisme podcast? I'm sure you're aware of how important it is to me to highlight wine brands that are owned by those in the Latinx community. That is why the last Wednesday of each month, we host a virtual wine tasting featuring Latinx-owned wine brands. Whether you choose to partake in the tasting or just want to learn something about these vintners, if you enjoy wine, you will love these virtual events. Please visit thewineandcheesemetpodcast.com slash events for more information. Let's support our community and support these small vintners. Hola, hola, mi gente. I'm Jessica Yanez, and this is the Wine and Chisme podcast, a podcast created to amplify voices and share the stories of people from BIPOC communities doing remarkable things, all while sipping on a glass of wine. So welcome to your new Wednesday. The Wine and Chisme Wednesday. Hola, mi gente. Welcome to another episode of the Wine and Cheese Make Podcast. Today, I have Stephanie Moran Reed, the founder and co-owner of Miha Books in Culver City, California. Stephanie, welcome. How are you today? Thanks for having me. I'm great. Thank you. I can't wait to hear your story. But before we get into the chisme, we start with the wine. Are you partaking today? What are you drinking? Okay, so girl, it's 1.30 <laughs> and I do have to pick up my daughter later today, Pero, to support you. I picked up a little something, something. Okay, so I I did a little Moscato for you today. Oh, <laughs> thank you. I never forced anybody to drink wine, but it's always funner with wine. Not gonna lie. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so I've had this wine before. I've had it in a couple episodes, but it's the last of the wine. So I wanted to finish this bottle before I opened up another one. And it's because I've been, you know, I got this new system called the Cor. Oh, it's not a new system. I got, for me, it's new. It's called the Corvin wine system where it has, it clamps onto your bottle and you put a needle in the cork. And then when you take the needle out, the cork reseals itself. So it can, yeah, it's freaking awesome. So I've been <laughs> drinking like those wines and then this wine is a screw top. So I wanted to finish that. So screw tops are really popular in Europe for wines. We are a little bougie in the U S cause we think, you know, Oh, it has to have a cork, but it doesn't. There's a lot of really great screw top wines. So this one, people have probably heard it before, but if you haven't, it's called Famille Perrin Res- uh, Reserve Cotteron Blanc 2020. Fancy, it's a fancy. French wine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's from the Rhone area of France. And as you can see, this is a pretty pale color. It has notes of white flowers, buttercream, and apricots. Yes, I can definitely smell the apricots. So, salud. Salud. 
since we can't, you know, cheers in person, then we'll do it any other way. So that's how we'll do it. Yes. So I'm super excited to have you here and get all of the achievement for Miha Books. Let me kind of read your bio. You are a nationally certified activity director dedicated to helping seniors attain the best possible quality of life. In 2016, you started your first business, Senior Sensory, a Los Angeles-based service that provides purposeful and stimulating activities for seniors. Unfortunately, your senior business was severely impacted during the COVID-19 pandemic. Visitor restrictions on senior communities meant that you could no longer serve most of your longtime clients. The pandemic also halted the launch of your second company, Read Musicians, a Musicians for Hire booking service. But... In true chingona entrepreneurial (laughs) spirit, you took advantage of the extra time gained during the stay-at-home orders here in California, and you created your third company, Mija Books. Girl, you are just like a go-getter. I know you're Mexicana. Were you born in Mexico or were you born here in the States? I was born here. Uh, My mom was born here. She has some siblings that were born in Mexico. My, My grandparents went back and forth. For a while between Mexico and here, but I was born here. So you're like second gen. Second gen. Same as me. Uh-huh. I'm a second gen San Diegan. My grandparents are from Mexico. My mom was born in Bakersfield of all places. I'm like, oh, what a place to be born. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I know what my experience, because I know, I mean, we have a lot of people that are, you know, like first generation or immigrants themselves, but And I know what my experience is. What was your experience growing up as a second gen Mexican-American? My mom didn't speak Spanish as her primary language, right? So she was full on English in the household. That's evidenced with my younger sisters because she didn't speak Spanish in the household. My dad didn't really speak too much Spanish in the household either. He primarily spoke English. My two younger sisters, they barely get by with speaking and, you know, conversing in Spanish. I fortunately had my grandmother in part of my life in the beginning was she was primarily my babysitter for a good portion of my life. And every summer, winter break, spring break, I would literally pack up my bags and go live with her in Tijuana, Mexico. That experience is not, I don't think, typical of second gens. And I was fortunate to have that. And so that's, you know, I may I know Spanish. I'm I'm able, my husband says that I'm fully you know, uh, bilingual, but I still get nervous, you know, having full on conversations in Spanish, especially with press related stuff. So I definitely can read and write Spanish. I can converse and get by much more than my sisters can. So I think that's a unique second gen experience that I had. That sounds very similar to mine because my grandparents until, you know, took care of me, they would speak Spanish. Most of my, my parents, Their first language was Spanish. However, growing up, they would get in trouble for speaking Spanish. So now they don't really have an accent. I probably haven't, and I don't even have that big of an accent, but I probably have a heavier accent than my parents do at this point. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yeah, it always comes out in certain words. (laughs) I didn't know that I had that accent until college. And a lot of my non-Latino friends would be like, that's not how you say that word. So what do you mean? I've been saying it that way my whole life. My sisters would be the ones making fun of me, like saying sandwich. And yep. they would be like, oh my gosh, Jay, it's not sandwich with a G, it's sandwich with a D. And I was like, 
it comes out of my mouth is sandwich. So that's what it's going to be. <laughs> like, I'm not going to completely change my, just because you say so, yeah. but no, I get that. But I didn't have like what you were saying, have the experience of I, a lot of my friends would go to Mexico for the summers and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. I did not have that because my grandparents had moved to the States. So I didn't have that experience. And I was always so jealous of my friends that would go yeah. to Mexico for the summer. And I would be so sad when they would leave because my friends were leaving. And then right. and I'm like, here I am. But my parents, because they used to get in trouble speaking Spanish, they made mm-hmm. sure that we, our first language was English. Right. But the people I hung out with, most of my friends growing up were like Filipino or Mexican and their parents spoke mostly Spanish. So that's where I would get a lot of my practice from. And then my, as my grandparents got, or my grandpa, because my grandma died when I was young, when he got older, he would speak less and less English and more and more Spanish. Right. <laughs> and, but my sisters can't communicate at all. Like at all. Yeah. I, I'm the same okay. as you. I can get by, you know, it could definitely get better, be better. And if you throw me in Mexico, like give me a week and I will be totally, (laughs) give me a day and I'm like, good. Give me a week and I'm like, okay, yeah, I'm fully fluent. But no, I totally get that. Totally under, like, I totally understand that. Tell me if this was similar with you, but I was still very in tune with our culture, with Mm -hmm. foods and the things that we did and like traditions and everything. So even though my parents did not make made it a point to for us to learn English because of their experience. And I think that's what a lot of people don't realize is if you're second gen, sometimes even if you're first gen, like your parents want you to assimilate because of their experience, their traumas. Right. Mm-hmm. And with that, there's like this whole thing of you're not Latino. And have you ever felt that? Like I've told, I know I've felt times where I, I've None of my friends have ever told me that, but just seeing other people saying things, not necessarily about me, but about people Mm -hmm. that have similar experiences of me. There's definitely been times where I've not felt Latina enough. Have you felt that? Oh, gosh. You know, I would say I feel like my sisters get that more than than I do. And it's mostly with other family members, which is unfortunate. You know, I mean, like a lot of the time I feel like they're playing around and kidding. But from my sister's perspective, I feel like it really does affect them mentally, psychologically, when they hear things like, ah, you know, ¿por qué no hablas español? You know, from the aunts and the uncles and the cousins and that sort of thing. My initial reaction is to say that I haven't gone through those experiences because we've been, I, just like you're saying, I also felt really attached to our culture growing up. You know, a lot of my family still speak Spanish, like you were saying, you know, other family members you're able to learn from because they're primarily speaking Spanish. Um, you know, we always had, we had the traditional, we had barbecues every other weekend just because, you know, (laughs) um, so it was always a time to gather and, you know, celebrate our culture with the mariachis or the banda music in the backyard, you know, so I I definitely have always felt connected to the culture for sure. (laughs) Girl, we used to haul everything to, like, if you're Latino and you live close to the water, you're going to feel me when I say this. When you send, like, well, it was, I wasn't old enough to drive when we would do this, but you get there early to the beach and you have freaking everything with you. <laughs> yeah. It's like you have to bring two truck full of things oh, yeah, just totally. for like, you know, and then everybody's there. 
you got to get your spot. Mm-hmm. Every oh my gosh, like so. <laughs> <laughs> the the gatherings are a big yes. deal. Oh my gosh, we would go Oceanside Pier was our place. Uh, down here in San Diego, that was our that was like where we would go all the time. <laughs> and I've realized that I do that. Like my nephews were recently here. First of all, I've realized I am that Thea. Like I have turned into <laughs> that Thea where. You know, we went, I took my nephews to the beach and I have a tent and I have a blanket and I have, you know, we went to dog beach. So I have my dog and we have food and we have drink, like, and there's just four of us and everybody's carrying, everybody has arms full of stuff. Yep. Yep. I'm like, oh damn, I am that Thea, aren't I? (laughs) Mm -hmm. No, my family were big campers and everyone that we, Yosemite National Park was our big family trip every year. And my Mexican dad, oh girl, man, he would literally pile up a van, like he, he put in a, a man-made attachment on top of our van of that course. we went to go camping. <laughs> and that just was so high. I remember one time we went through a gas station and everybody was looking like, what in the Mexican <laughs> hell is going on here? You know, like, oh my God, he has the whole house and he even had... The expression is everything except the kitchen sink. He bought a kitchen sink oh uh, my camper God. camping situation where like literally you can hang up the comal, you know, on the <laughs> the outdoor kitchen. It was nuts. Oh my gosh. You could actually <laughs> hang up a comal. That is yeah. hilarious. Yeah. My parents weren't <laughs> big campers. I would go camping with like my cousins and stuff, but our family vacations would always end in Vegas. <laughs> <laughs> hey party party family <laughs> so a lot of yeah so a lot of times like my nina or uh, my nino and my my tia mary because my nina and nino like are from different sides in the marriage is not just my tia and tío. it's yes, like yes. different same that's here what, same here so for those who don't know you know what you i realized that nina i figured this out a while ago um nina nino is a very california thing so outside of california a lot of people are west coasting i think uh, they don't know that Nina Nino stands for Padrino Madrina. And what? we just shorten it to Nina Nino. <laughs> that's like, that's it. Nino Nina. Yeah. <laughs> All day. I, when I lived in Texas, I would say Nino Nina and they had no idea what I was talking about. Wow. And I'd be like, oh, my Madrina or oh, my Padrino. And they're like, oh, they had no clue. But I was like, oh, it's a very regional. Like Nina Nino is a very regional thing. So Interesting. Look, now you guys learned something about California yeah. and Californian Mexicans. <laughs> <laughs> but we would go to my Nino's house, my Tia Mary's house, and they lived like 15 minutes from Disneyland. So we'd go there, go to Knott's Berry Farm or go to Disneyland or whatever. Because, you know, if we don't have to pay for a hotel, and I'm this way still, if I don't have to pay for a hotel, if I know somebody, I'm staying with you. <laughs> Yeah, that's changed a lot with my husband. That's a whole nother situation. He's definitely a hotel guy, but I get you. Yeah. (laughs) Your parents, did they push you a lot? Like as far as when you were in school or were you somebody who put, like I was somebody who pushed myself. In fact, I was just having this conversation with my mom and she said, when when it came to school and it was something I wanted, there was nothing I wouldn't do to make sure I got, like if I wanted to change a class or if I want, there's something, a grade that I wanted, like I was the one. My parents were like, no, we want you to do good. But I was the one who really pushed myself. Were 
you somebody who really pushed yourself or was it your parents that pushed you? Girl, I feel like we have the exact same story there. Oh my God. <laughs> um, yes, yes. So I was the first in my family to go to a four-year university. And, you know, so my parents didn't know anything about the college system at all. You know, they didn't know about the FAFSA and all this stuff that you could, you know, fill out. So when I think back on that time, I'm like, yeah, how did I how did I do it? <laughs> you know, how did I get the FAFSA money? How did I apply to college? How did I, you know, graduate with the with the degree? And I think it was probably the few friends that I had in high school that kind of, I kind of just followed what they did. You know, <laughs> it's like, oh, there's this thing called the FAFSA. My high school had a workshop, you know, to learn about it. I said, okay, I guess I got to go to that, you know. But in, throughout school, I always had straight A's. So, I think for me, the school had put me on that list of, you know, we need to guide her to get her into college type of thing. So I guess my school helped out a lot, but I was always the one to jump on those opportunities in high school that would that were able to help guide me through college. So for sure, it was all it was all me. (laughs) We do. We have parallel (laughs) lives. That's so crazy because I think my first The first time I remember doing something like that was when I was in eighth grade and I was in regular math and I felt like it was too easy. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to go into pre-algebra because I wanted to be in algebra by the time I was a freshman. And I, and my mom was like, are you sure? Like they, school was like, no, you need to get your parents permission. We can't just put you in there. if The Mm -hmm. the teacher didn't put you in there. And I was like, no, I want to go in it. And I came home and I was like, mom, I want to do this. And she's like, are you sure? She didn't even question me. She's like, are you sure that's what you want to do? And I said, yeah. And she's like, okay. (laughs) Right. If that's what you want to do, then you know, you know, you know, you're going to have to do extra work if that's what you're going to do. And I was like, yeah. And I ended up getting like an A or B in the class. And then I got myself into AVID. Like, Mm -hmm. and um, AVID is a program that helps students from low income and minorities. Well, like, and now it would be just communities of color students that come from communities of color to right. ensure that they are in college prep courses to prepare them for college. So I got myself into that and I just was like, here, sign this. So my parents just <laughs> trusted when it came to certain things like that. My parents just trusted my judgment. When I look back, certain things I'm like, yeah, they were good to trust my judgment. And other things I was like, they had no idea. <laughs> why did they even trust me at all? <laughs> right, right, right. No, I totally feel you. Yep. It was the same thing for me. Just brought home whatever needed to be signed. And I felt like my parents trusted me. They definitely supported me in all the, the t- decisions that I made. But I feel like I couldn't go to them for advice about college or long-term planning. You know, they didn't yeah. have that. So it was hard for them to to try and guide me when they didn't know the systems like they should, like they could have, you know? Yeah. And I think that's so key because I feel like that's a big separation between parents who are immigrants and then parents mm-hmm. who are a first generation, because I feel like my, neither of my parents went to college. I feel like they already felt like they were giving us a hand up because they were making sure that English was our first language that, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like certain things mm-hmm. I feel And there was different things expected of them at their time. Mm -hmm. So they didn't come. My parents did not come here to get a better life. They were born here. So I think that makes like a difference versus, you know, with immigrant parents versus first gen parents and us being second generation. You went to what I always joke as the holy grail of Latino (laughs) universities, UCLA, because if you're, especially if you're in Mexican (laughs) Southern California, you get into UCLA and you're like, 
I'd asked my mom about that. And she's like, well, we could have never afforded that. So I'm glad you didn't apply there. <laughs> no, girl, if it weren't for my grades, I would have never been able to afford it. Yeah. My grades got me all the grants and they even covered my housing. So nice. that was a blessing for sure. Um, I actually came out of college with money in my savings account. I didn't take out a single loan. Girl, oh my, so, yes. let, me, let me drink to you because <laughs> I still have student loans. <laughs> no, man. At one point in college too, I had, I was a full-time student and I had two part-time jobs and then a third stipend job working in student life. So I, I hustled, man. I hustled. You I saved did. my money. You know, I saved up to, enough to the point where when I graduated, I never went back home. <laughs> I got my first apartment in Koreatown and the rest is history. Like my, my family talks about that all the time. Like, oh yeah, she flew the coop a long time ago. <laughs> she never They're came like, back. She, we tried to clip her wings, but she's like, hell not, nah, get away from me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. Ukla definitely expanded uh, my whole perspective of how big the world really is, you know? So what was your experience going to UCLA? Did you get involved in like, what type of, or did you get involved in different organizations? Were you just, because, and plus I need to know your field of study. I want to, it, let me see if I'm saying it correctly. It's gerontonology or gerontonology. No girl, not even close. Oh Lord. <laughs> I was like, what the hell is this? I was thinking um, geriatric something because of what you do, yeah. but. It is. It is related to geriatrics. So it's gerontology. gerontology. Oh, Lordy. I yeah. was so, sorry, guys. I was so <laughs> off by that. <laughs> okay. So first tell me, like, what was your experience and how did you get into gerontology? Like that is, I've never even heard of that field outside <laughs> of maybe medicine or something. Right. Yeah. Well, my journey with UCLA was interesting because I was actually accepted as a math applied science major. My math grades in high school were my highest scores in any of the subjects. And, you know, at the time I was like, well, I'm good at math. I should just continue with this. Right. And so that's what I applied for at UCLA because of my scores. I got in on that in that subject. But I quickly realized um, after taking a, a bunch of math courses there, I couldn't do that for a living. You know, that was just not for me. It was not Girl, exciting I have a at friend all. who has her master's in math and I'm like, and she's a math teacher. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, I don't know how I love you and I appreciate <laughs> you. I don't know how the hell you do it. <laughs> right. Yeah. It was just not exciting. And especially at UCLA, it's so theoretical based. I mean, they're brilliant people at UCLA. And that was just not my thing. I, I found that out really quickly. But because of that, you know, I was taking other electives uh, my first year. And there was a really interesting course that was called, I think it was the human aging, something related to human aging. And it was a, a year long course versus just the semester. And it focused on the biological, the psychological and sociological impacts of aging. And I was just naturally interested in anatomy, psychology. In high school, I took some courses on those subjects and I was just fascinated. It's just a natural interest that I had. And additionally, I told you my grandma raised me, right? And so I feel like I always had this, a lot of people say I have an old soul and I always feel like I connected with the older generation, right? The older population. Mm. And 
that course that I took really opened my eyes and guided me on the path of my future career, which was working with seniors. Unfortunately, there wasn't a gerontology major at UCLA. It was only a minor. So I minored in gerontology and then I majored in cognitive science. It kind of had a bunch of my interests all in one. And um, that's where after graduating, my first job was working at a senior retirement community. And that's a few years later, I started my business uh, servicing mostly retirement communities. So what did you do when you were in those retirement communities? Because I mean, obviously, by reading your bio, it was really kind of helping. I mean, when I think of stimulating activities, for, okay, have you ever seen the movie Troop Beverly Hills? Uh, I feel like it's been a long while. I don't remember it. So they're doing like their service-based activities. Me and my sisters love that yeah. movie. It's like this classic dumb movie, right? It's just so silly <laughs> and everything. And they're at a senior citizen home, like dancing with them. So that's what I think of too. So what exactly would you do in these areas when you're working with these senior communities? Yeah, I know. So typically when people think of senior activities, it's either bingo or like chair exercise, like chair jazzercise, right? You guys, that's my um, mom right now with her cancer. She's like, <laughs> she did chair yoga yesterday. <laughs> yeah, it's great. A lot of those programs are great. And I actually had to do some of those classes. But working in these communities, I saw that there was a need for sort of higher level activity, you know, because the seniors that are in retirement homes, a lot of people like to equate getting older, especially with people with dementia, that they're like working with children. And I really don't like that, that comparison because on the one hand, some of the behaviors may seem childish, but senior citizens have had a literally a lifetime of experience, right? A lot of these people Absolutely. have had long careers. I've worked with a lot of elderly uh, famous people. They've had a lifetime of experience. And, and I, in my position, not only did they learn from me, I learned from them constantly. It's very much a unique uh, relationship that you build with, with people in, in retirement communities. So long story short, a lot of the programs that I created were to stimulate them on a much higher level. So I did things like poetry appreciation classes. I did TED Talks and discussions. We'd screen a TED Talk and have a really in-depth conversation about the TED Talk. We would do a little bit more advanced arts and crafts projects, book clubs I started in a lot of the senior communities I worked with, uh, trivia that was really similar to like Jeopardy style trivia. So all of it was intentional. It was purposeful to stimulate very specific parts of the brain, you know, and that's where my cognitive science degree came in as well. So um, that was really my purpose is to, to stimulate the, and the brain in a, in a non-traditional way. That's really awesome. I think in the U.S., and maybe not, not in all cultures, because once my grandma passed away, my grandpa moved in with us. I feel like we, you know, the Latino community, mm -hmm. we tend to have multi-generational households. Same with the Asian community. And I think to a certain extent, the Black community does that as well. When I think of those senior communities, I honestly think of just that it's not really diverse because I feel like a lot of, mm -hmm. but please correct me if I'm wrong, because I know, like I said, a lot of our, our communities, we become multi-generational households. Is it, am I correct in assuming that? Well, so a lot of the communities I worked in were the really high-end, almost like the luxury line of communities. And in Southern California, in a lot of communities, 90% or more were Jewish. <laughs> um, so I had a lot of Jewish clients, that's for sure. But I would say that you start to see more of the POC communities 
in the retirement communities that are, to put it nicely, that are the underfunded in the more urban communities that are, you know, you need Medicare, Medicaid to get into those places versus the, the communities I worked with, those are out of pocket, like super high end luxury communities. It's unfortunate that there's that dichotomy, but oh, in general, um, it's definitely more skewed towards the white communities because of exactly what you're saying, that for our generation, the same happened with me when my grandpa died. My grandma, she's, she was really stubborn, so she tried to live by herself for as long as possible still in Tijuana. But eventually, when she had some medical scares, she finally moved in um, with my mom. Yeah, as far as the retirement communities, it's definitely much more... You don't see as many um, in those communities, uh, people of color, that's for sure. Yeah, because even when my uncle, my Uncle Paul, who has been passed for a couple of years now, when he could no longer live by himself, he moved in with my parents. So, mm-hmm. and for almost 20 years, he lived with my parents. So it's it's definitely, we joke, obviously me and my sisters, I have two younger sisters, we would definitely, you know, when my parents, if they ever get to that point, which I mean, I think assuming they, everybody always gets to some point mm-hmm. that we'll, we'll take care of them. But we always joke that um, we're going to put them in a home. <laughs> we're like, we're right. going to put you in a home. We're sick of you. And then my mom, right. my mom's thing is every time she does, you guys are going to miss me so much when I die. Oh my God. Is that just, a, is that a Mexican mom thing? Because every Mexican, you're going to miss me so much when I die. And I'm like, <laughs> yes, mom, of course we will. Like, ¿Quién te va a lavar la ropa? ¿Quién te va a hacer las tortillas? You know. <laughs> like, you're right. You're right. It's going to be quiet at your funeral because you're not going to be there going. <laughs> yes. Yes. That's definitely a cultural thing. <laughs> yes. You also had another business, Reed Musicians. So that's the musician for higher service. How did you get, like, while you were working with senior citizens, how did you yeah. get started in that? So it actually started because of my work with seniors in the homes, uh, a really big part of their budget. They always make sure they allocate for entertainers. And a lot of the time it's like a happy hour type of entertainment in the in the senior homes. And so I saw that they were a lot of these communities had the entertainers at least twice a week, sometimes three times a week, always during the big holiday events, you know. But the thing with the communities I was in is that they were kind of like these circuit entertainers where they're all older themselves, right? The entertainers. Um, <laughs> and they're, uh, you know, some of the residents would start complaining like, oh, it's the same person over and over. Or, you know, I want to see a young face and and this, you know, all, the, all these comments I would hear. And going to UCLA, I knew that our music school had a really awesome program where, you know, you could reach out to the music school and hire young, fresh musicians uh, for entertainment. And so uh, when I, with my connection in these communities, I was able to bring on some, bring in some new faces to the retirement homes and they were always a big hit. You know, these are classically trained, professionally trained, you know, students that love to perform and were always looking for gigs and so I started out that way. And then at some point we're like, man, we're, this is a big moneymaker here. You know, <laughs> I can just start a whole roster and start sharing that roster with my other communities. And so, yeah, it was really right before the pandemic, we started putting together our website and it's up right now. It's still live, readmusicians.com. But then the pandemic hit and it was 
like zero live entertainment, right? So that put a halt on that business. And we were literally trying to get that up and start running promotions. I think the month of or the month after we went into shutdown uh, during the pandemic. <laughs> oh my gosh. You know, speaking of the pandemic and it obviously affecting your business, by affecting your business, I'm assuming it would affect the residents in those homes tremendously because they're trying yes. to be as active as possible. They're trying to see their family be part of this, you know, be part of the community that they're living in. And then everything gets shut down and they can no longer. And I mean, at least like for us, right, we could even if we're at home, we can watch TV. We can go take a walk outside. If I, there was certain, I had my own little, I live in a very small apartment complex and all of us were working from home. So we became mm -hmm. our own little pandemic group, right? Where we could right. see each other and do cookouts and everything like that. But that's something that they couldn't do. Are you able to work back in the senior homes yet? Or are you still out or have you heard from these people and what's, how is it impacting them? Yeah. So during the pandemic, there actually were quite a few published articles like New York Times and all that sort of stuff about how there was this sort of unspoken massive effect on seniors' psyche. They couldn't directly attribute the fact that all, there was this increase in loneliness and depression, but there was rumors or whatnot that seniors were literally dying because of the lack of stimulation, right, during the pandemic. If it wasn't the COVID that, that got them, it was this really heightened stress due to isolation, depression, right? Not having that stimulation, especially if they had a really engaging community. Um, unfortunately, there's a big discrepancy in communities when you talk about how active they are um, and how much they try to keep promoting, you know, the stimulating activities like the ones I would provide. Um, so at my height, I had 13 different senior communities in Southern California that I serviced. And as of today, I only have heard from two of them, from one of the communities, I still am able to work with some of my previous clients remotely. So some of them that are tech savvy and are able to get on Zoom, I still work with them. Another thing I provided was senior tech help. So I would help them with, you know, the internet, their email, FaceTime. Zoom, all that sort of stuff, <laughs> FaceTime. Yep. So I was still, I'm still able to help a very small percentage of my previous clients one community has let me back in to do group activities like I used to do. But now all of my time is really focused on the Miha Books company. So I haven't been active in trying to reach back out to my previous senior clients because my time has been dramatically shifted towards this new business. Yeah. Well, let's talk about this new <laughs> business, Miha Books. You're working in seniors, then you're working with... Girl, how did you <laughs> come up with this idea, because you own this with your husband, correct? You both are the right. co-owners co of this. How did you guys come up with the, the Miha Books concept? Because we've had a couple of authors on and publishers on previously, but you guys are like an online bookstore. So right. how did you come up with the concept? Because you're an online bookstore that caters to not just bilingual books, but books that really serve the black and brown communities. How did you come up with this concept? Yes. So at the start of the pandemic, our daughter was almost one. She was, she was just before her first birthday. And 
um, you know, I, we both wanted to to give her a home library. So when we were going to traditional big box retailers and we'd try to find some diverse books, multicultural books, it was always a challenge, needless to say. We would buy up all of the the black and brown books that we could find. There weren't that many. <laughs> and we start, originally started Miha Books with just putting up a website and I would write book reviews from all of the books that we had purchased and just threw them up on the website as a resource for other people looking for multicultural books. And then a few months later, it was in October of 2020 when we decided to launch the store portion, when I realized that my senior business is probably not ever going to get to the point where it was before. I needed to start financially, for financial reasons, finding another avenue, right? And so that's when we decided, well, like we already have the infrastructure to run a bookstore. And so I started opening up accounts with traditional trade publishers and, and through social media started finding a bunch of really awesome indie publishers and self-published authors that also shared our mission and our vision because I only highlight books that have protagonists of color. So as Black, Brown, and our Asian brothers and sisters, right? we're trying to grow that, that uh, category as well. So it really started because of our daughter. You know, she's Afro-Latina, and we want her to always know that she's of a bicultural heritage and to be proud of it, to celebrate it. And we want that, uh, you know, to see herself represented in, in dolls and books and everything that's in our household. I love that because you are a mixed race family. How are those things, obviously by books, is she starting to grasp because she's only, a, what, like two and a half maybe now? She's two years and three months. So does she recognize, I mean, I love the fact that there's so many more kids being born that are of different cultures, different religions, mm -hmm. different races, like mixed race, all these, these things, because I think that's what's going to become more of the norm versus this separate thing. <laughs> Does she realize these things and how, like, are you continuing to make sure that she is aware of her, of both sides of her heritage, mm -hmm. both cultures? How are you guys trying to make sure that she knows about both of those and embraces both of those. So there's a few things that... And we're, her Americanness on top of that too. Oh, right. Exactly. <laughs> a few things that we're, we're kind of privileged to have is her daycare is my sister-in-law. She runs an in-home daycare. So it's my sister-in-law who's Black. My, my husband's Black. So she's it's my sister-in-law, my mother-in-law, and my two nieces that they all live in that the house that where the daycares run out of. And my my daughter is able to attend that daycare. So not only do we have that daycare, thank goodness, but she's also spending time with my husband's side of the family at the same time. You know, I try to speak at least 90% Spanish with her. Um, so for sure, she's going to know Spanish. <laughs> and then my mom, at least one or two times out of the week, uh, she will babysit my daughter as well. But as far as having her know the concept of, you know, her skin tone is in between my husband's and I, right? I know there'll be a point where she'll start asking questions, but we want that to be like a really seamless transition to her understanding why she has a different skin color, you know? And the way that we're doing that is by obviously the books that we've curated for her library, um, but also my husband and I sort of made this pact, <laughs> this rule that we weren't going to have any European dolls in our house. So all of the dolls that, that we have purchased for her have some sort of melanin in their skin <laughs> because as we all know, especially here in America, 
anywhere you go, as soon as you step out of your house, you're going to get the oversaturation of the idealized European style of beauty, you know? Um, And so we just don't see a need for that in our household because she's going to be oversaturated with that as soon as she leaves the front door. So that's, that's, those are the primary things. By the way, I was looking on your website and the, oh my God, your family is so beautiful. I love it. Your daughter, I'm like, oh my God, she's so cute. Thank you. (laughs) So speaking of how like you are curating your books, that's one thing you have books such, Mm -hmm. I love like some of these ones you have, um, happy hair, our skin, how to wear a sari. You have Mm -hmm. the book that Gabrielle Union and Dwayne Wade wrote for their daughter, you have all, so how do you find and vet the books that you want to sell on your website? I mentioned we have relationships with traditional trade publishers and that process, they actually make it really simple because, you know, they have catalogs of all their entire, you know, whatever's available for purchase on their websites. And I literally will scroll through the catalogs and I have to scroll quite a bit to get to the book covers that have black and brown or Asian representation. That's how I get the the books from trade publishers. You know, if it's, I told you, we we're only focused on protagonists of color or, you know, books that celebrate culture. And so that's how I do it for trade publishers. But then for, we also like to foster relationships with self-publishers and independent publishing houses. And so we use social media to do that. You know, we've built some really amazing relationships over social media. And so we will ask for samples and, you know, we'll read through digital books to see if the story also aligns with our vision. But that's really the the number one criteria is does it does it represent black and brown or Asian communities? And we go from there. So I need to make sure I connect you with my friend Norma. And Norma I was going to mention Norma. Where are you? <laughs> go for it. So, no, I listened to your podcast with Norma and uh, we've been communicating because we're going to meet up for coffee soon. So, yes. Yay! Oh, my gosh. That makes my heart so happy. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. I'm excited for her for, and what she's built. And um, yeah, she's been following us on social media and she connected with me actually to say, hey, you want to grab some coffee because we're we're local. We We live not too far from each other. So. Yeah, that'll be happening soon. <laughs> oh my gosh, that makes see see what the Wine and Cheese podcast brings <laughs> people together. <laughs> yes, yes. No, that legit makes me so so excited to hear that. You and your husband are actually starting a Kickstarter fund for your own series of children's books, starting with Reina and Rashad. Can yes. you tell us a little bit about Reina and Rashad and if people want to be part of that, how they can get involved? Yes. Oh my goodness. So. You know, one of the big questions that we always get, we we do a lot of pop-ups in Southern California and people will come up to our booth. Oh my God, this is so amazing. You know, do you write any of these books or do you write all of these books? It's like, no, not yet. We don't write yet. However, my husband and I are now in the middle of a process of starting our own series. The intention with our series is, I'll say, I, I listened to another of your podcasts with Gian, is it Gianfranco? I think was yes, his name. Yes, Gianfranco, yes. yeah. Yes. And so I connected to a lot of what he was talking about in his filmmaking, because after curating all of these books, one thing that my husband and I have noticed is that there's not enough stories with black and brown characters of them just having fun. Right. 
yeah. sci-fi, fantasy, adventure, magical stories with black and brown characters. There's not enough of that. And so my husband and I want to make our contribution by creating a series called Reina and Rashad. And they will be two Afro-Latino siblings in a fantasy made-up world that we've created. And um, their sidekicks are Alebrije-inspired animals, creatures that we've made. And part of the story that's really important to us is that it, they're going to, they're essentially going on this journey of discovery to find out that their ancestors were once kings and queens of the ancient um, Aztec civilizations of ancient, you know, African civilizations. And so we really want to celebrate Can, can I read that too? Like, yeah. <laughs> it's not just for kids, right? It sounds no, like I no, want to no. I want to read that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and so that's the thing. Like we're starting with the children's books because that's what we're doing and we have a platform to sell, but we want to build a world, right? I mean, we we want to take this thing Disney level, right? We want to build chapter books, we want to make a short film, you know, we want to create a cartoon series, we want the merchandise, we want all of that. Um, well, I, have so, some, I have a director for you and you're ready right. for this. <laughs> right. Yeah. So with the Kickstarter, we, we were launching our initial print run on Kickstarter and hopefully that will be out sometime in November of this year. So yeah, if, if you're not familiar with Kickstarter, there's a link in our Instagram bio to sign up for it, but it's a fundraising platform that's all or nothing. And so if, if we don't meet our fundraising goal, then no money gets collected. But if we meet our goal, then you're able to help us print our initial set of books. Uh, we're also going to ask for a coloring book print. And then our one of our stretch goals will be to get the short film produced and created. What is your goal to get this done? So initially it's that first book print run to get that going. And then the stretch goals would be the books beyond the first book in the series. But you guys better go to, you know, yeah. we're going to make sure the social is in the show notes as well as we're going to talk, we're going to make sure that she drops it here, but you guys need to go because the majority, <laughs> I would say about 90%, if not more of my audience mm -hmm. come from communities of color. So I know that they're right. resonating with this. And I mean, I didn't, you know, we were talking about in the Heights and I think you heard that conversation that me and mm -hmm. Jump and Uncle were having in regards to in the Heights talking about you know, when I was growing up, there was no representation. There was like, I found out Linda Carter was half Mexican, Wonder Woman. And I right. was so excited. There was no representation in, at all of our community. unless. And my mom wasn't somebody who really watched the novelas. I would watch them when I would go to my friend's house. And yeah. when we get representation, we need to support the representation and we need to spend, we need to spend our dollars there. Because if we don't, then more stories cannot be told. It just closes. Right. It makes it that much harder for the next story to be told. Right. So exactly. I think that's so rad. What has been, because you've gone through, oh my gosh, you've gone through like you had two businesses that completely shut down during COVID and you started a new one. What has been kind of the most challenging thing about that? And what has been the most blissful thing about that? <laughs> oh, good questions. Man, the most challenging is, I mean, that's just, that just speaks to entrepreneurship in general. You know, you're always taking a risk as an entrepreneur. You're your number one supporter. <laughs> and so you have to uh, literally jump off the diving board. Otherwise it's not going to work, you know? And so I think that's, 
the most challenging thing is knowing that you're taking a major risk. And so because of that, you have to put in a hundred thousand percent effort and work to make it succeed. You know, that's always the most challenging thing. There's no such thing as a nine to five when you're an entrepreneur, right? It's a constant, you know, working on all aspects of, of business and marketing and accounting and all that sort of stuff, you know. I think what's been the most blissful is at the same time, yes, it's a lot of work, but it's your baby. You know, it's your creation. It's it's what I'm choosing to give to the world. You know, I me vas a hacer llorar. I always get emotional when I talk about this. <laughs> no, it's okay. It's, I um, love that because it just shows how yeah. much you care. Yeah. <laughs> Has your oh. husband always been... Like, what, at what point did you meet your husband and has he always been supportive of all of these different ventures? Obviously, of the Miha books, he's part yeah. of it. What about the previous ventures? None of this would be possible without my husband. We've been together almost 10 years and we've been married for three years of those 10 years. And he, addition, in addition to the three businesses that we've already spoken about, he started his own law firm. You know, he's a, a young black attorney that started his own law firm. And his business partner is a Latina badass attorney as well. And so he's always had the entrepreneurial spirit. And he's the one that encouraged me to start my very first senior business, you know. And throughout my entire entrepreneurial life, he's always been my my go-to, you know, my number one supporter um, and my number one inspiration, really, because he did it before me, you know. And so we're on this journey together. Oh my gosh. I'm just like, oh, <laughs> Bro, I could sit here and talk to you for hours, but I'm trying to be respectful of your time and not keep you on here forever. But I wanted to make sure you had the opportunity to share anything. If I, if there's something that I have not asked or something else that you want to share, I want to make sure you had the opportunity to do so. So please do. Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, just as you were mentioning earlier, you know, none of this is possible without the support of people that, that we're speaking to, you know. So my mi gente, our community, um, Black and Brown and Asian, even though that we're, we're creating this content for those communities, we want all people to be able to enjoy what we're doing. That includes white kids, you know. Black and brown kids shouldn't be the only kids with black and brown books. <laughs> right. You know, white kids should have that inclusive multicultural library as well. And so, you know, when people come up to our store, to our pop-ups and they see, oh, they definitely are catering to a certain type of audience. We want people to, to do away with that mindset and, and have a more open mind. And, you know, why not pick up that book? that's highlighting a culture you have no idea about, right? Yeah, a lot of these books are doing a really awesome job of not throwing it in your face that it's about a particular culture. Like you mentioned that book, How to Wear a Sari. That's a really fun story. You know, it's just this little girl that's trying to figure out how to wrap a sari and she's having fun doing it. You know, she gets tripped up and that sort of stuff. And it's not overtly, you know, like this is a South Asian book, you know, even though it, it's just highlighting a cultural element, you know? So I, I that's really the main message that we want to get across when we have books is that it's not just for black and brown and Asian people. It should be for all people. Let's be honest. Hate is taught, right? So, if, and, and people are scared of things that they are unaware of. So if you start letting your kids learn about different cultures, you know, when they're young, then they're going to be open, more open-minded. They're going to want mm -hmm. to 
they're going to be curious. They're going to be friends with everybody, you know, or want to yeah, be I mean, friends with everybody. Yeah, like they won't know any different, right? If if you're if you're creating an inclusive environment for them from day one, they won't know any different, right? I mean, it's like, yeah, I have friends from all different nationalities and I like foods from all over the world, you know? Yeah, So, and it shouldn't yeah, be I, like there's been that thing. It shouldn't be like you don't see skin color. It should be you're appreciating everybody for who they are, including that. And right, wanting right. to know more about them. So um, I love that so much. It makes me so, <laughs> it makes my heart so happy. I mean, and I'm, I look, I love little kids. I've worked in youth development and stuff, and I've worked in a lot of nonprofits. And when it comes to anything that really has to do with expanding kids' minds, their souls, their heart, it like really affects me and I'm getting teary-eyed just thinking about it. I think what you're doing is so extremely important. I know you and your husband are going to be so successful. I feel so honored that you've shared your time with me today, but how can people reach you on social media? Yes. So we're on Instagram at Miha Books. We're on Facebook at Miha Books. Our website is Miha Books. And we also have a YouTube channel, Miha Books Storytime, where I do English and Spanish book read alouds. Um, we kind of created a little show for kids uh, where it includes positive affirmations. And we have a little dance segment with my adorable daughter. You have to check it out to promote physical activity. So it's kind of like a mini show that we made for the kids on YouTube. Well, We always start with the wine and we end with the wine. Yes. So Stephanie, what is your favorite type of wine, red, white, or rosé or bubbles? And do you have a particular brand or or type of wine that you like outside of just being a red wine? Right. Yeah. So I used to drink a lot more wine than I do now. And I think I stopped because it makes me really sleepy. (laughs) So I'm definitely a spirits girl now, but I used to be a big cab drinker. That's for sure. Cab was our go-to. And then also, um, why is the name going over from the Argentinian wine? Oh, what is Malbec? that called? Malbecs. Yes. Yes. So we did a lot of cabs and Malbecs, but not as much anymore. <laughs> it was recently, just recently, it was earlier in the month, it was a Cabernet Sauvignon Day. You know, I live my life by the wine calendar, not by the normal <laughs> traditional calendar. <laughs> Sounds good to me. <laughs> Life is short. <laughs> you know, like exact life is short, drink wine. That's my motto. That's right. <laughs> Stephanie, thank you so much for sharing your story and sharing your time with me and everybody who's listening. Like I said, what you and your husband are doing is it's even more important than I could probably verbalize. Anytime people are doing stuff like this, it is I'm a very talkative, verbose person, but sometimes I'm just at a loss of words because there sometimes just are no words for some things that people are doing. And and yours is definitely one of those things. I appreciate you. Thank you so much. (laughs) Thank you so much. Until next time, mi gente. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Wine and Chisme podcast. For more information on today's guest, please see the show notes for links to websites and social media channels. You can check out all things Wine and Chisme on our website, thewineandchismepodcast.com. There, you will find the names of wines I drink each episode, as well as additional information on me, the podcast, and you can even apply to be a guest straight from there. You can also find us on social media at thewineandchisme on Instagram and at 
and Cheese My Podcast on Facebook. Remember, if you want to hear more wine and cheese my, please subscribe, rate, and review. Five star ratings are appreciated, and those positive reviews are appreciated even.